I'm going to make a little bit of a forecast. Here. Okay, go ahead. Um, two things. First off, even if the war in Ukraine ended today, we would be in a position where the resources from Russia are going to be cut off for a long time. Oh, I don't yeah. think that's going to result. Yeah, that's not Secondly, going to stop. And in Ukraine, maybe it's going to take Ukraine years to recover before they can start putting food back into the system and everything else back right. in the system. The other thing is, I think China has hit a watershed moment, a tipping point this year. And they've gone from being one of the most dynamic, innovative, fastest growing economies in the world. I think they are on a downhill slope. And you can mark this down. And, I totally and check. agree with this. Come come back in a couple of years, say, Jeff, you're right, you're wrong. I'll be glad to hear from you. China has made a couple of grievous errors. Xi is setting himself up this year to create a totalitarian state where he can be emperor for life. Yeah. He can be president for life or whatever. And he is cracking down on entrepreneurs. He's cracking down on people who want to make money. He's cracking down on everything. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. McClure. I always feel weird speaking in a radio voice. I'm doing this totally for you, you know. Elder Baldy, Jeff. What do you mean? This long long dj history from before finance and before finance even existed yes, back when radios can when radios consisted of two people tapping on rocks this was before the desert was dusty folks this is you right. know the the he didn't have to discover that dinosaurs had feathers uh he was I the start, one that plucked them i started in radio in 1965 wow so you've said That's, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday a few times. No, we didn't. Never no, said Sunday, no, Sunday, Sunday. No. no, we didn't do that. That was that would be considered monster be, truck gosh, rally. No, we did not do monster no, truck. This is before radio became different. It was the high class yeah. communication. Yeah. AM radio was the high tech way to communicate with people, and it was the practically everybody in town listening listened to the evening news in Idabel, Oklahoma. On KBEL, Ida Bell, Oklahoma, 1240 on your radio dial. Radio still had dials. What are those? That's like the soap, right? No, it's no. a circular thing. It's, it's a, like an analog clock. Yeah. Um, my, I, I have uh, a whole series of people in younger generations, and they don't know what a CD or a DVD is. They don't know what a cassette is. I mean, it's just... So, yeah, we're, when, when I started radio with you, it was at the end of the 20th century, but we still had eight track players that um, that you had to flip to play the ads. It was pretty amazing. That, and that was high tech to me because oh, yeah. I read the ads when I was a radio announcer back in the 60s. So, so all of that uh, extra deep voice and exciting episode, uh, to me, it really brings back um, the Muppet Show and Pigs in Space, but that was a spoof off of something that happened much earlier. See, all I know about it is the satire. So, it's Muppets in Space. Muppets mainly. in Space. Yeah, you know, pigs. You in realize space. you realize you date yourself when you say Muppets in Space because I have a trainer that's in the generation after yours. 
gives me great pain twice a um, a week. And I talked to her about the Muppet movie, and she just looked blank. Yes. And she's a well-educated person, and I realized that it has I'm not, not to do with education. It's time. Yeah. <laughs> so we're we are all eldering, all of us. Uh, hopefully. 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 Yeah. Other than that, other than that, you die. Um, but we've got to jump into some disclosures. We've got one first one. We're well, even though if this is the Saturday, April 16th, if you heard about the tornado through Salado, Texas, um, we did not experience the t- tornado directly, but the effects of the tornado were definitely felt. And so everybody's fine and that we know and are aware of. There were 23 injuries. Everybody out there in the village seemed to be okay. No deaths, which is pretty amazing because there was some big devastation. We One had person a, in critical condition, though. Yes. We had hailstones, softball, grapefruit-sized hailstones, which just ruin your day if you're taking a stroll. That's that's. Don't take a stroll in a golf ball and above-sized hailstorm. And if it starts talking softball, you need to wear some like football pads or something. Maybe more. Maybe more. (laughs) Anyway, um, so that's the first disclosure. Next is that uh, this is not only a radio program. The the personal wealth coach is also the name of an investment advisory firm registered with the SEC. It is? Uh, It is. Um, We're not offering business on the air, for sure. We're talking about generalities and education the reason is because as fiduciaries we're not allowed to give advice in a non-private setting uh we're also we also need to know our clients uh thoroughly before we give them advice and that is not easy to accomplish in a podcast or a radio program it's just i don't know i i suppose we only have a few listeners so i mean we could just get to know all of them and have this communication going back we we actually do have quite a good number of listeners. Well, I can say that we don't pay for this radio program, nor are we paid to do this radio program. Uh, KTEM, we do advertise on KTEM for the radio program. And so does KTEM advertise on KTEM for the radio program. Uh, We have a little conflict of interest in that we have gotten a few clients over the years. uh, From from the radio program. From the radio program. Our primary benefit for us to do the radio program, other than the fact that we are weird uh, spending hours each week preparing for it and then uh, doing the radio program on Saturday morning instead of doing something else, is we enjoy doing it. And we also have, by report, at least three clients that listen to it. Yes. And hopefully we're educating people. I mean, we do get a lot of emails from people thanking us for doing it. So we appreciate that. Well, that's, that is our main objective here is to get financial education out there as well as we can two hours a week but uh let's see the next thing is that you want to do the deem do the deem this is this is as jake said an educational radio program we don't give investment advice and the educational information we provide on this program see how my words are getting longer yes um educational information we provide normally i would say the stuff we say but now you're speaking faster and using bigger words so this is definitely a disclosure so go ahead monster 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 Um, sunday 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 monster sunday 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 right 
the information we provide on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable. However, we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. You missed using the word deem. You said believe. I said believe. Oh, I oh, should have said deem. We're working hard on bringing okay. this word back into normal vocabulary of the English language, and you're skipping it. The poor word. Sk- Take believe and translate it into deem. The information we provide on this radio program has come from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. I deem that statement to be good. There we go. Thank you. Now, we've used deem probably more than you have heard the rest of the week combined. And right. We have, unless you're a lawyer. Unless you're a lawyer. And then you probably deem that we have not used deem enough. <laughs> the deemed lawyers uh lies deemed lies and statistics yes um we probably ought to go on to another subject shall we well uh, we got some questions we got some some good ones good ones inquisitor john has two questions for us would you like me to uh, read them off, or do you want to do the inflation one and just read it off as you go? You could say he's asking about inflation, okay. and he's asking about he, he's uh, got supply China. China supply chain issues and an inflation question. The inflation question, Elder Baldy is going to take, and the yep. China supply chain question, uh, Younger Baldy is going to take. Right. So this is Elder Baldy, and I'm going to talk about I, we wrote that in being the newsletter Jeff, this week. Jeff being Elder. Yes, I am. You are. Yes. Yes. Okay. You think, uh, therefore, you are. In our newsletter, and, and John sent us a quote from our newsletter, uh, history is replete with examples of how the Fed takes breaks too hard and a recession ensued, but the underlying causes of inflation were different than now. So an argument can be made that past performance is not a good indicator for this time around. Matter of fact, we say that a lot. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Yeah. Um, well, Inflation, the last really, really serious bout of inflation we had was in, it started in the mid-70s with the price of oil going up, by the way, but the price of oil never came down during that period. Um, And it worked its way through the economy until by the early 80s, we had double-digit inflation. And that is what people are citing as the last time. As a matter of fact, when you look at, this is the highest inflation since, it's sometime in 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 the early 80s. Uh, but that inflation that we had in the 70s and 80s had been building up gradually. You can actually see it happening from the 1960s forward. It, had, it was rooted deep in our system. And frankly, uh, it's largely to be blamed on unions. Unions sat there, would go on strike. We, we only had three manufacturers of automobiles, in, as far as we were concerned, in the world because Japanese Vehicles simply didn't have much of an impact in our market. They were kind of trash at that point. And, and uh, uh, the unions wanted raises for their people. And since they could shut down the, the way the, the United Auto Workers could shut down the entire, all three companies from making automobiles at the same time because they were exempt from the antitrust provisions of our law. And so they kept raising their own wages because they could because they had in essence a monopoly and they could raise the price as high as they wanted to. So each time their contract came up, they raised their wages, they raised their health care, they raised their retirement. They built it into the contract that after a certain time of work, they would get a raise, period. Anybody working this right. number of, of years would get a raise. And it was a significant raise and it was built in there regardless of whether or not your productivity went up. 
regardless of whether or not you were a good employee? So we had a systemic tilt towards inflation in the economy of the United States. And it, if you want to follow it all the way back, it came from the fact that we, the United States, had a man, near manufacturing monopoly in the world following World War II. We could raise prices as high as we wanted to raise them within certain limitations. And uh, people had to pay that price if they wanted it. If you want a car making stuff. or a refrigerator or steel or basically most things, you had to buy it from the United States. And we had a lot of control over that. That led and to that, planned obsolescence, which was where a car would destroy itself over the life of your loan. And you would have to buy a new one at the end of it. And that was usually around three years. And right. it, it was and it was in, it was built into the system. You had to buy another car. That adds more inflation into the system. So we had this systemic inflation that Paul Volcker is largely credited with breaking. And he broke it by putting us through two recessions in the early 80s, 1980 and 1982. So the 1982 recession was quite severe. Uh, in many ways, it was the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. Uh, we came out of it quickly because all he had to do was lower interest rates to get us out of it. But he, in essence, broke the unions. He broke, uh, he broke the cycle. But it was an extremely painful thing, and we had recessions as a result of but the Federal Reserve. I, and I can give you a different view on this, a really kind of cool view. He probably also prevented the bankruptcy of General Motors, Ford, uh, Chevrolet, the the entire the, all of the major manufacturing facility of the United States delayed it. What? Delayed it because they did go bankrupt. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It would have been much sooner because the competition from Japan picked up, the competition from Germany picked up, the competition from the rest of the world picked up. And if we hadn't broken that contractual mess, it would have caused the bankruptcy of the major industrial part of the United States much earlier. We still went bankrupt, mm -hmm. be and mostly because of the union contracts. The General Motors went bankrupt because of retiree contracts and the union uh, contracts. It's and, just right. was impossible to keep up with Toyota. The so so we had an, a very systemic system of inflation built into our e economy back in the late seventies and into the eighties that had been there for decades, and it took some severe medicine to break that and get us back on the track towards lower inflation and lower interest rates. And by the way, this is this is a key element if you're an investor. Bond rates were the highest in the early eighties that we have seen in the 20th century and the 21st century. And from there, they started down and they hit bottom last year in the middle of the year. And they're starting back up in a long cycle now. But the, the issue is it's very, very different this time. Uh, I hate to say it's different this time, but the circumstances really are different this time. Yeah. When we're talking and, about behavior in the market, if somebody says it's different this time, they're totally wrong. When you're talking about the causes of a specific disaster or whether or not those causes exist today, that is a very reasonable set of words to use. Right. So, so what we've got today is inflation that is so far solely generated by external events. Internal events within our economy, the assumption that prices are going to go higher and your wages are going to go higher simply because you've worked there longer is an inflation, internal inflation we, generator. We call that we structural. Have, 
Right. We have external inflation generators right now. And the cure for those ultimately is competition. Yeah. So, uh, so when we're talking about structural, they were talking about contracts where you've got raises coming. Were you talking about you've got a guaranteed job somehow? We don't have that. We have external events. What does that mean? The pandemic, a war. Um, that, those are external events. It just like a, a hurricane can hit Florida and cause inflation across Florida that's sustained for a year. It's, it would be easy. The, the, the two big generators right now of inflation are the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. And the fact that Russia supplies a lot of stuff that we've banned and as a result, the price goes up on one side. Right. You say, well, the pandemic is basically over. No, it's not. Not, not even close. And that's kind uh, of leading into the next question. <laughs> the, the, big, the big generator of inflation in the near future, further inflation, presuming we have further, a lot further inflation, is China. China is doing a fantastically horrible, unbelievably awful job of managing COVID. They decided rather than to have an effective vaccine, which we have and they don't, and they were going to have very few cases of COVID. They were just going to lock their borders and COVID would never come in, which frankly was a very short-sighted, and I'm going to use a blunt term here. If you're Chinese and you're listening, I apologize for the bluntness of this, but it's reality. It was a stupid idea. A highly contagious virus to think you're going to keep it out of your country forever is just silly is the nicest thing I can say. There are millions, the largest manufacturing, the center of commerce and manufacturing and, and innovation and everything else in China is Shanghai. Shanghai has been locked down for weeks. The embassy, non-essential people from the U.S. embassy there have been asked to leave go back to the United States because they can't get food. People are literally going hungry in Shanghai because the grocery stores have been closed for weeks. They can't leave their apartments and the contagion is still raging in the city and it's spreading to other areas. And China's in a no, absolutely no possible win situation over there. There's a real good article in the Wall Street Journal about this. Financial Times had a good article about it. Um, yeah. And their, rea their reaction to some of this is really scary stuff. We got th this kind of touches on the next question though. So I think let's, okay. That inflation but, question and the supply chain question are so interlocked. I, I think the feds goal right now is not to raise interest rates like Paul Volcker did to slow the economy. It is to raise interest rates to neutral and thereby no longer stimulate the economy and this is where we have to hope because we don't have any control of it. The external forces cannot be controlled by the Federal Reserve. We can't control the war in Ukraine. We can't control COVID in China. But what we can do is wait for the world to adapt to the new reality, which it probably will within a couple of years. Um, for example, chips were built somewhere else prior to the pandemic. Uh, if, you live with a, if you live in Central Texas, where many of our listeners are, there is Samsung is going to build chips in Taylor, Texas, which it still blows my mind. Um, we are moving a lot of things back out of China, but it's going to, and that's the next question that we're going to come to. It's going to take us several years to do that. We are finding other sources of energy. Europe is finding other sources of energy than Russia. It's going to take us several years to adapt to that. When we do, comp international competition will go back into 
this is the understanding I have, and, and most economists seem to agree. Once international competition comes back into place, I say international competition, uh, U.S. car manufacturers then are competing with car manufacturers someplace else, for example. And the chips, we have an ample supply of chips and things like that. Then the prices, the price rises, will level off again. This is the assumption that, that every major economist is working on, and it's the way the world really functions. So that leads us to the next question. Yeah. And the next question has to do with an article in the Wall Street Journal. Inquisitor John sent us a picture of the Wall Street Journal, the paper version, as is tradition. <clears throat> the headline is, Supply Chain Chaos is Great for Warehouse Stocks. There's a circled portion of the article that talks about how, example, how, how expensive it would be to move our supply chain out of China. And this is the example. For example, companies would need to invest $1 trillion over five years to relocate all foreign manufacturing based in China that isn't designed for the Chinese market. And according to estimates from the bank, that's from Bank of America, and this doesn't factor in the higher cost of operating in higher wage markets. Okay. His question is, $1 trillion seems to be a bit low as, as expensive as things are today. Thoughts? And... I love this question uh, because this is the wrong metric to be using. It's like, uh, well, I'll, I'll just jump right into to what's wrong with this. This is similar to any technological shift. If, if you have a, a manufacturing plant somewhere, let me kind of rewind. The, the, the thought behind this article is still based in old old world manufacturing technology, meaning like the mom and pop cobbler shop that was making shoes and all of the tools and the shop were passed down from father to son for generations. If you were to move that facility, the entire cost would have to be recouped. You would need all new tools. You would need a whole completely new setup to be exactly like what you were. And that's not the way the world works anymore. If you go to a still a small business concept of like a machine shop where you've got, say, 40 machines and machinists in there, uh, probably 20 machinists and 40 machines, you're not talking about replacing all the machines anymore. Some of those machines can be moved. And what's more, those machines don't last father to son for generations, they can last a long time, but you still have to replace the machines over time. And what usually happens is there's ongoing expenses at a manufacturing plant plant on replacing equipment. And if you think of it now, ramp it up to a much larger facility, like manufacturing computer parts or manufacturing automobiles. If you have a different model of vehicle every year, a lot more has to be replaced as you retool the line. A lot has to be replaced. Sometimes 20 to 30% of the internal structure of the manufacturing facility has to be replaced anyway. And if you begin the process of building the pieces that don't have to be replaced at another facility, and then slowly moving over, that's how we got to China, by the way, you didn't just suddenly, all right, turn off the plant that's making it in Italy. Just turn it completely off. Now turn on the plant that happens in China. That's not how business is capable of working. You would lose so much money doing that. 
You have to slowly ramp up in one place and slowly ramp down in another. And that's what we're seeing. And this is a great example of this is when um, the phone companies replaced the human operator. When you dial zero, you would get a human with a digital operator. This took place over 15 years. The technology existed pretty well at the beginning of that 15-year period, but you don't get rid of high-quality employees that are effectively doing their jobs to replace them with something more expensive. You don't hire a new employee when an old retiree goes. And that is the concept here with manufacturing. It's not a sudden shift. It took us... 30 years to shift manufacturing to China to absolutely stop and replace everything that's going on there with something else would probably take more than $10 trillion. You're right, John. That's probably more than a trillion dollars. It would probably cost upwards of $10 trillion to replace it completely. And that sounds huge, but not when you consider the amount of long-term investment required. And if you look at the amount of investment being put in this year and last year into new supply chain issues, we've spent more than a trillion dollars on it already. So it isn't insurmountable. Uh, the, The idea that this is another way of looking at it, much of that manufacturing that's going on over there is in the very commoditized area. But the same model of doll isn't sold forever. If you have a doll that you bought for your child five years ago, and it's not some kind of a name brand, or even if it is a name brand, you can't go out and buy the same Barbie that you bought five years ago. They've been changed. There's different stuff that goes with them. So manufacturing facilities are constantly changing And if as you move in new models, you start them at new locations, this is a very normal way for people to move the supply chain. And it's being thought about really hard right now. The kind of the underlying factor is that there are no boardrooms in the United States where people are saying, we need to increase our manufacturing capacity in China to sell to the United States. That is not a conversation that is occurring. It is the opposite of that in every direction. Uh, Shipments from China are less than 10% on time right now. There's a great article that came out uh, in the Wall Street Journal talking about um, shippers. And um, when when we're looking at uh, China as a whole, their economy is slowing rapidly. And this is something I said prior to the invasion of Ukraine when the world was sort of at a short moment of the pandemic seems to be under control everywhere. And I said the biggest thing I had to worry about for the economy long term had nothing to do with Ukraine as the the mountainous army was forming in Belarus and Russia. I was pointing at the fact that Hong Kong was in a lockdown and that was going to spread to the rest of China and they're not vaccinated and this is going to cause big shutdowns. So VW and Ford and a lot of other major manufacturers are having to slow their production. Just as a side note, that helps to uh, increase inflation as well. Because if you need a car and there's fewer of them being made, supply and demand says that the the supply prices need to rise because the demand is still there and there's fewer of them. 
So until we get our manufacturing back here in large parts for a lot of things, inflation is going to continue until China stops locking down and the war in Ukraine stops. Uh, and that's something that is hard for people to recognize. We can put some controls on it, but the Federal Reserve really has their hands tied for a big chunk of this. I'm going to make a little bit of a forecast here. Okay, go ahead. Um, two things. First off, even if the war in Ukraine ended today, we would be in a position where the resources from Russia are going to be cut off for a long time. Oh, I don't yeah. think that's going to result. Yeah, that's not Secondly, going to stop. And, and Ukraine may, it's going to take Ukraine years to recover before they can start putting food back into the system and everything else back right. in the system. The other thing is, I think China has hit a watershed moment, a tipping point this year. And they've gone from being one of the most dynamic, innovative, fastest growing economies in the world. I think they are on a downhill slope and you can mark this down. And I totally and check. agree with this. Come, come back in a couple of years, say, Jeff, you're right, you're wrong. I'll be glad to hear from you. China has made a couple of grievous errors. Xi is setting himself up this year to create a totalitarian state where he can be emperor for life. Yeah. He can be president for life or whatever. And he is cracking down on entrepreneurs. He's cracking down on people who want to make money. He's cracking down on everything. I think we just have to get used to the fact that we need to learn to do without China and Russia, and it's going to take years to do that. Yeah, and it's going to be expensive, but it's a lot less expensive for us than it is on our Ukrainians right now. I wanted to introduce the bullwhip effect, if okay. you're all right with that. Well, you can introduce the cattail effect at the same time. Right. Um, we talked about things. It's, it's an introduction to something that we've talked about a lot in the past, but it's been a while. The last time we talked about this was really in the very depths of the, of the recession built into the pandemic. Uh, when we were talking about when we shut down as, economy, as an economy, just massive shutdowns, mandatory. You couldn't, you couldn't leave your manufacturing facility open. Um, and I know people are having trouble remembering that that happened. It was only two years ago. But we had mandatory shutdowns across the United States. And we dealt with it in a very chaotic way, but we still wound up, at least economically, dealing with it better than anybody else on the planet. Uh, there were a lot of problems with how we did it. We just had fewer problems with the way we did it than everybody else has had. It's just nuts that chaos reigns and somehow we came out ahead we talked about something called the bullwhip effect and how bad it is for the economy if you shut down and then start back up and then shut down again and start back up that second shutdown is a lot harder on the entire economy than the first one it would have been better to leave it shut down longer and open up once and the reason is because if you're completely shut down and you hire a bunch of employees to come in and get your, your, your restaurant or your manufacturing thing ready to go. You, you're building stuff or you're selling stuff and you've got to get ready to do it. And if you've been shut down for a month, it doesn't just turn back on. You have to get stuff ready. If you're a restaurant, you got to get food. If you're manufacturing, you've got to make sure your equipment starts properly. You got to, uh, there's a lot that you have to do before you can start making money again. And if you have that compounded every time there's a shutdown, there's a problem. 
And that is one of the bullwhip effects. It's like you get this bulge of activity before you get movement. And another way of looking at the bullwhip effect is how inflation can get compounded into things. If you're the buyer of something and you're at the small business level and you say, I'm buying a part, I want uh, 10 parts to get in advance in case things break or because they're in high demand or something. And it takes a while for those 10 parts to get get there. It it takes something. So people say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll order extra because it's taking a while for it to get here. So you order 20 parts because it's taking so long for the manufacturer to get it to. You don't want to have to order it again and wait. So you order 20 parts. From the manufacturer's perspective, they just got a big order and they're trying to ramp up production higher than what it was because the orders are coming in. They're already having trouble meeting demand and suddenly all of the orders double. So they work hard at hiring new people to get in to meet that demand. And they say, hey, this is going to be the same kind of demand that we had before, only double. It's going to be a sustained double. So they hire all these people and they buy new equipment, which they had to order from another manufacturer who went into overdrive making more. And then the small business gets the 20 parts and everybody else is getting the 20 parts at the same time. So the demand drops at the small business. They have too much stuff. So they have to sit on it because they bought it at higher than expected prices because their demand was so high. So they're sitting on it for a while and eventually they have to mark that stuff down to get it moving. So they have to put a discount on it. This is the bullwhip effect in the supply chain. And this is, you know, I just gave this dire warning about inflation is going to be around for a while. We're going to have bulges in the inflation and we're in one of those bulges. Don't be very surprised if we see a lot of price drops in the summer. A lot of dropping in prices and you're going to go, oh, we've got it licked. No, it's probably just waiting for the next bulge to hit. This is the way that this kind of inflation works because it's a supply chain based inflation. And the small buyer is whipping the bulge back up. The manufacturers at the top of the whole chain that are the ones that are building the stuff are getting all of these conflicting orders of no, we don't want it or now we want triple what we wanted before. It takes a while for that to get dampened out of the system. And you can even measure some of the original bulges in this whip to the original shutdown. It's a very much like traffic science. If you're watching a traffic jam somewhere, the place, if if, think about this way, early in the morning, people are driving to work and somebody, an armadillo runs into the road. There's not a lot of traffic, but there's enough that putting on the brakes right there caused the people behind him to have to slow down. And you can watch that that wave kind of move upstream in traffic. The denser the traffic is, the longer that wave is sustained so that you can watch the traffic jam start based on that armadillo. And that leads to a traffic jam 45 minutes later. This is the kind of stuff that's happening in the supply chain right now. The brakes get put on, then the accelerator. 
And those waves ripple through the supply chain. And until the supply chain is shorter, which is what we're working on, this is what all this money is being spent on, is to shorten that chain, the bullwhip effect causes that little armadillo in the traffic to mix all the metamor- all of my uh, metaphors at the same time. That little armadillo at the beginning of the traffic jam is the small business owner saying, I don't need any more right now. I ordered 20 last time. And that, those kind of ripples are expected. Just So the first time we see inflation drop, don't go, we have it under control. Expect another bulge or two after that. It's just a normal yeah. part of how this structure works. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's something that I don't think it's built into the system. I don't think we, and this is why inflation expectations are watched very, very carefully right now by economists. If, because the, the numbers in the bond market and the people who are surveyed are saying that three years from now, they expect, they expect inflation to drop down to just above 2%. So that's why they watch that very much. As long as that doesn't come up, I think we're in good shape. And we are at the end of our first hour. Yes. So hopefully we have enlightened you, probably befuddled you. This is not an easy topic. <laughs> Hopefully the, the mixed metaphors made more sense than uh, confusion. Uh, if you'd like to contact us off the air, we've got another hour next hour, but if you'd like to talk to us off the air, uh, we do give fiduciary advice to people of high net worth um, for investments and so on. Uh, the email addresses or webpage, well, let's just start with the phone number. Local phone number is... or 1-800-914-7526. The webpage is thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can email us at jeff or jake at tpwc.com and we're at all the places podcasts are available. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.